Today on Never Was a Gamer, are you ready to destroy something beautiful? Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the cryptic voice whose demands will lead me to ruin, Dimitri. (laughs) Hi, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, Michelle has finished Shadow of the Colossus. Mm -hmm. She's listened to a cryptic voice, Mm -hmm. killed a bunch of colossi, and I'm sure she feels great. I feel not what I was expecting to feel. I think I am maybe... a. So I like this game. I think maybe I'm a little cooler on it than I expected to be. Okay. I think I understand why it's special and why it's very important to people and to games. But I think I think what happened is I psyched myself out. <laughs> I think I was so in my head about like, ooh, is this the point where I'm supposed to have big feelings? Is this the <laughs> point? Like, am I feeling it right? That I... Don't think I fully like let myself go with it. So I I really I like and admire this game. Um, but also not in exactly the way that I thought I would. So I guess just to dial it back a bit, do you just want to set up what this game is about yeah, really yeah. briefly? Sure. So you play as a young man called Wander who rides on his horse aggro into this forbidden land to strike a deal with a higher godlike deity called Dorman to bring back a young woman to life. I think it's his love. Um, and so the doorman tells him that he'll do it if Wander will accept this like mission to go kill all these colossi. And so that's what you're doing to earn the favor of this god who's going to do this miracle for you. Right. And that's pretty much it. There'll be some twists and turns at the end that we'll get to later. But by and large, that is that's the premise, and that's most of the plot you have for say the first ninety yeah. percent of the game. It yeah, is pretty bare bones for you, especially. It must have been a bit of a whiplash coming from so much Kojima. <laughs> so we played Metal Gear Solid, and we played Death Stranding, pretty close to playing this. Yeah. So going from uh, kind of Kojima's excesses to Ueda's minimalist style, mm-hmm. both in terms of narrative and in terms of mechanics and structure maybe that also had something to do with it yeah uh, like i had been i had been trained by kojima that like oh they'll tell me when like when i should feel and what i should feel and what (laughs) i should think like when it's time for emotions i'll know so maybe we can start uh digging into this playthrough by zooming out and starting kind of where we often do at the just the general gameplay structure the general loop Mm mm-hmm because I think this is one place where you really see the game's minimalism at work. Yeah, this is the loopiest gameplay loop <laughs> I think I've ever seen in a like recent game. You right, know? and and it's not even a, I don't even know if I'd say it's the loopiest. Rather that it it is like a distillation of the traditional action adventure mm-hmm, mm-hmm. loop. So it's it's kind of calling attention to what that loop is in most action adventure games, but really just giving you the core nugget and mm-hmm. in doing so really calls attention to itself. As a loop. So do you want to set up what that what that general structure is? Sure. So your your sort of central base is the temple that is the temple to Dorman, I guess. And uh, you will be there, Dorman, this voice from above that you this disembodied voice will say, uh, you have to go kill the Colossus that walks the lake. And then it'll say like one more sentence about the Colossus that is sort of a hint. 
Yeah, you'd think for someone who wants these things dead, he would just kind of tell you where they are, but he speaks in this kind of cryptic bad poetry. Beyond <laughs> the mountain lies the pale in a tail. <laughs> That's actually one. Um, and so then once you have your assignment, um, you get on your horse aggro, and you have this um, mystical magical sword um, that you have brought with you. And once you've received a Colossus assignment from Dorman, if you hold up the sword uh, with a particular button, um, a ray of light will shine from it in the dis- in the direction of the Colossus that you're looking for. So, so then you follow that light, but the landscape in this is very beautiful and a bit complicated. So there's some navigating. You get to where the Colossus is, you kill the Colossus, and then you sort of pass out and wake up back at the temple for your next assignment. Right. And the key thing here is that in between you getting on your horse and reaching the Colossus, there's re- there's no other enemies. It's just yeah. you navigate to the Colossus, you kill the boss, and then, yeah, you find yourself back at the temple. Mm-hmm. Right, so in, in that sense, it is taking out... And again, I don't want to say it's filler in other games, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, the thing between the your starting point and the boss. <laughs> Which is often most of what you and I like about it. Exactly. Right? <laughs> like if it's a platformer, that would be the platforming yeah. and the enemies, and that's usually the most fun part. So, so filler is probably not the right word, mm-hmm. but... It really does call attention to the fact that in all of these action adventure games, like a Mario or a Zelda, mm-hmm. especially ones that it's clearly referencing, right? They kind of save the princess style mm-hmm. narrative that really it is just this exactly this the exact same loop. You have a starting point. You do a bunch of stuff. You get to a boss. You're told uh, this. You didn't do enough. You have to yeah, kind of start the loop over yeah. until you get to the final boss and then right. the game's over. Right. So it really is um, making that explicit and um, and like you said, kind of loopy. Mm hmm. But there is that navigation part. So, well, first of all, I think I want to kind of shout out this navigation. I think this is a great waypointing system. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't like waypoints, but what about this? I think this is great. I think this is really good waypointing. Yep. Um, It's giving you just enough information, but it's not deterring you. There's still a lot of exploration involved. And also, it is far from a straight shot to most (laughs) of the colossi (laughs) you face. Like. Your first two or three, maybe, it's it's pretty simple. They're not that far. But once you get to the back half of the game, like, it's not like... So just for clarity, the sword doesn't point where you need to go next to take the correct route to the Colossus. It points at the Colossus. So it can be pointing at the Colossus, and sometimes you have to go the exact opposite direction of where it's pointing to go pick up a bridge and go through a cave and make your way around so that you end up coming through this forest and then like approaching the Colossus from the back. So yeah, there's like, a lot of observing the landscape and figuring it out. Yeah. And like that sounds like it should be really annoying. No, it's so good. But it, but it's not. It just kind of works. And it's this waypointing system that gives you enough information, but often kind of inspires more mystery yes. or like leads you onto different paths and makes you actually learn about the landscape And look at more. things really yeah. closely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's motivated in game. It's a sword that you have. It's actually part of the power of the sword. Like it, it's narratively motivated. It yeah. makes sense within the world. It's not that Wander has some weird power that gives him, <laughs> that tells him how many meters away a it's Colossus like, is. Or like, oh, take that bridge over there. Like, here's your next like stop on the on the right. way to your thing. It's just like, nope, it's that. It's in that direction. But like, you have a lot of work to do in figuring it out. Yeah. So, so I did love this. Yeah. But the question is, do you think this game would have been almost better as a boss rush and actually taking out that navigational part? Oh, my God. No, absolutely not. So first of all, I think the the nav I think this game makes the argument that the navigation and that that journey part is actually an important part of that core loop. 
Um, I don't think it's arguing that that's that it's really just like straight to boss. And also, I think like riding across a big open field on aggro your horse is just like such a pure pleasure. Like it's just it's so great. It feels so good. Um, having that exploration part helps so much with pacing. It lets you see so much more of the world, um, which really has a lot of a lot of character and a lot of a lot of mood, uh, and is really specifically designed. And the colossi in this game are so much a part of their environment that I think decontextualizing them by just like teleporting you mm. to where the next boss is would really be a disservice to the sort of scope of what they were thinking about when they made this game, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and I guess too, because uh, yeah, I, I do, I do agree that the navigation is essential, and it it is maybe my favorite part of this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the moments in the Colossi fights that are exhilarating, but yes. kind of getting there, it all, it also offers this kind of space to reflect and contemplate on your actions, your character's actions, without having to worry really about getting into other into combat or, yeah. or other conflicts. It's also your time where you start to value aggro. Mm. Like there are some uh, Colossus fights where you use aggro a bunch, but overwhelmingly I think the bond that you form with that character happens on the plains and through the the big rock land bridges. Like I think it happens in the in the in-between moments, um, more so than in the the big boss climaxes. And so since you've since you've already brought him up so many times, maybe we should talk about aggro. Mm-hmm. Um, how it seems that you kind of enjoyed your relationship with him, but if you could dig in a bit more into how he controlled, um, how he worked for you within the game, and specifically, did he remind you of Trico from The Last Guardian, which you did play a little bit of? So I did really like how he controls. Um, he was a little difficult sometimes, but he's my buddy, and I love him. <laughs> I will say. Uh, so again, just to recap, I played uh, a couple hours of Last Guardian, but didn't finish it. Trico does feel like the more refined and independent version of this. Like I see, I see how Trico is like the next evolution of some of the ideas that they're playing with with Agro. Um, he didn't. So it's yes and no. Like I, I think if I hadn't played Last Guardian first and had Trico in my head, I would have been like. Yes, he feels so alive. And there were moments when I found myself um, sort of unconsciously RPing him as a real animal. Like, Mm. I know one of the things that happened really early, it might have been on the first or second Colossus, is I was, like, riding aggro across this field towards the Colossus. And you leaned over and were like, oh, if you mash triangle, you can make him run. And my first response was like, well, I don't want to drive him too hard. So I would, like get him galloping a little bit and then like ease off and then go. It's like, this is a video game horse. This like, it's fine. Um, But it it was like, it felt like a real animal enough to trigger that in me where I was like, no, like I don't need to, I don't need to be spurring this horse. Like Mm -hmm. it's not a race. We're going to get there. Don't worry. It's fine. Yeah. And it's it's kind of this, this balance too, that um, Ueda was talking about, or he he mentioned in interviews when he was, discussing their goals with aggro that and he says that quote the biggest issue is how to give expression to a real horse which doesn't always obey it's not like a car Mm -hmm. or a motorcycle it always it won't always turn when you say turn but on the other hand if it doesn't listen if it doesn't listen too much then it's stressful it's stressful for the player right right 
And so it's really a matter of balancing this so that you feel like the horse is not an extension of you, that it is this kind of a live creature, but nonetheless doesn't drive you nuts. You know, I think my relationship with Agro actually kind of turned a corner on like the sandworm colossus. Mm. Because one of the things that happens there is you have to bait the, the sandworm to come out of the ground by like letting it hear Agro running. And then as Agro's riding, it rears up behind you. You have to stop navigating forward on aggro, turn around so you're not controlling where the horse is going, and shoot the Colossus who is behind you. And for a long time, I was tripping up on that because uh, I was trying to stay in control and keep steering and then figure out how to also turn around backwards and shoot. But, and this is a little thing, you aggro actually is fine. Like, you can turn around and aggro will, like, kind of navigate himself and like keep up the pace and like Mm -hmm. keep running like where he needs to be um and that's like a really simple thing that is probably mostly put in there for convenience because you can't steer and shoot and turn around and shoot at the same time but it more than it really really gave me the feeling of like oh agro's got this he's Mm -hmm. like not gonna run into anything he's gonna keep going he's gonna keep the pace up so we're not gonna get eaten by this thing like I can trust him to do this while I turn around and shoot this thing. Right. He's an he's an AI, right? Like he's a character in yeah. the world, not just a power up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think I I felt it so much more after that fight. Um, yeah, it it like really changed something about how I looked at him as like a partner or a companion. So while we're on the topic of things that maybe think for themselves, have minds of their own, uh, maybe this is a good time to talk about your relationship with the camera. Oh my god. And then we can zoom back out. and and The camera is the real villain of this game. (laughs) The camera is the true enemy at all times. It is both responsible for like some of the moments I like best, which again, I talked about like riding aggro across an open plane. When you do, the camera like goes down low and behind you and is kind of looking up and gives you this super epic adventure feeling. It's so good. But then also, if you don't want the camera to be where the camera has decided it's going to be, good luck. There's no <laughs> negotiating with this thing. It's like, and often it is pointed in a direction that doesn't really let you like see where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you can like pry it away from its default position. But as soon as you stop moving the joystick to make you look, you know, higher up or to the left or whatever, it instead of staying there, which it would in most games, it like reverts back to where it's set to be, which is often the angle that does not let you see what you're trying to do. So I wrestled with this camera a fair bit. <laughs> it was a major theme of the game. Was like, can I please see what I am doing here? <laughs> stop this. You have to stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also it it set up some really great it set up some really great shots. Like it it was it was responsible for some of the highs and some of the lows. <laughs> That's what I think about the camera. Uh, okay, so if we if we're gonna kind of zoom out of the minutia of the mechanics and think more great about great camera pun. Okay, this guy. Oh, no, <laughs> this guy. What a joker. <laughs> uh, so if we think back about the story, character, world, the first your first impression of this space that's being set up for you. I mean, the game opens with a really dramatic cinematic cutscene, mm-hmm. uh, but then kind of dumps you right into it. So what are your what are your first impressions of the of the world? Um I love the visual identity of this game. Like you would never mistake any still from this game for being from a different game. It's just so distinctive. 
Um, the the lands of this game are incredible. So beautiful. So well laid out. Uh, really interesting uh, layouts. Um, just like kind of a knockout. Lots of sort of um, crumbling architecture. You get the sense that it once was full of buildings and there's these ruins everywhere. There's water. There's cliffs. Like what... Man, what's not to love? Like, I, I think the first thing I really loved about this game was the world that it gave me to run around in, which I felt was immediately you can feel that there's like a coherence here. Like everything that's here belongs here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For thinking of, I mean, games we've played for this show, this game, at least as well, if not better than Super Metroid, um, really sets the tone. Yeah. There's sort of this like uh, fairy tale or almost like... um. Brothers Grimm sort of vibe to both the story and also I think sort of the cast and the pallor that's on everything really enhances that and gives it this this melancholy sort of bittersweetness that I I just love it. It's just beautiful. Like I I just if there were 20 more missions that I could do in that game that were just riding aggro around to different points and finding different like weird little Easter egg right. things. Right, you don't I want do any more colossi. No, no, no. I'm good on I'm good on colossi. I like these colossi, but also we're good. There were 16 good colossi. I really like them. We don't need more. But I would 100 percent go back and and do some more exploring on aggro. Yeah, and I don't know if I'd even say there are 16 good ones. <laughs> there are many good ones. I don't know if all 16 were home runs, but uh... <laughs> there were a good number of good ideas for you know what for putting 16 bosses in a game. I would say they did a very good job of having yes. at least most of them have distinct ideas that are executed very well. So yeah, related to kind of this opening, I think it's been well established that you're someone who, when it comes to games, likes narrative plot specificity. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you have a pretty bare bones, impressionistic plot and um, a kind of inscrutable character. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any feelings about this character that the game's making you play who... From the get-go, you know that he has transgressed. Yeah. He's kind of coming to this forbidden land and then is set out to do something that maybe if this was a complete open experience, you would choose not to do. <laughs> I would absolutely <laughs> choose not to do it. Um, I don't know when I've played another game where from the very inception, I'm so not on board with the choices that my character is making. Like... I've played characters who make bad choices, of course, but normally a game will give you enough of that character's perspective and let you identify with them enough that, you know, when I say they make a bad choice, I mean, they make they make the choice that you want to make and you understand why the character wants to make it. It just isn't like the right thing to do. Uh, um, whereas this one, it's just you don't get any interiority from Wander. You just... The game tells you he has carried this woman's body across a huge landscape to bring it here. He's going to try to revive the dead. Not historically a great idea. (laughs) Making a deal with a god. Hasn't read any Greek mythology. uh, And you kind of know like, oh, this is going to go real bad. This is like not a good idea. And so you just start kind of carrying through. There's not like big plot stuff where it's like, hmm, I wonder if we should continue. Like, it's none of that. It's like, you are a wander. Wander's going to do this. Wander's getting these assignments. He's going to go kill these colossi. That's what we're doing in this game. Yeah, and to kind of return to this idea that it is distilling the action-adventure loop, it's also, I think, calling attention to that premise. But in this case, giving you this character that isn't just either this empty vessel who really has no personality, mm-hmm. 
or this avatar that you want to project yourself into. But instead, it's very explicit. Like, this is a character that we've created and you're the player and you're supposed to kind of take control of this character and and help this character on this character's quest. Mm -hmm. But that quest is not exactly the same thing that... Right. Right. There's no kind of one-to-one relationship between the mind of the player and the mind of the character. Right, 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 right. Which is the thing that most games try to efface. Right. Uh, And it kind of, I I feel like it's low-key a call-out on some of those games that offer you, like, the bad, like, Mm. you can do the bad thing or you can do the good path. It's like, well, here's the thing. This character would do this and it's horrible and you know that it's um it's not set up to be so sympathetic and appealing as heavily i think as in a lot of other games that sort of play in this space and intellectually i like that emotionally it felt weird the whole time (laughs) (laughs) i was so ambivalent about wander and about this entire thing like every time i mean maybe this is a this is the time to bring up when you kill a colossus sad music plays oh yeah so Okay, so the sad music, Ueda has mentioned before that when this game was being tested, the testers thought that was a bug. I completely understand that because it's like, it is like, what is the opposite of fanfare? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, beautiful. Thanks. But it's like, it's so, so sad. And then the scariest thing (laughs) in any video game ever happens, which is that as the Colossus kind of goes down and breaks apart, these like black smoke tendrils come out of it and hit into Wander's body and Wander like passes out and then wakes up again in the temple. The first time this happened, I was so scared. (laughs) (laughs) And then I kind of got used to it a bit, except the times when it pulls you underwater when you're trying to swim. Oh my God, that's the scariest thing on earth. So yeah, it's it really lets you feel the wrongness, I would say, uh, and does not shield you from that. It's very much like we're doing this, but like there's going to be consequences. Yeah, it's it still kind of blows my mind that this came out on the PS2 mm. for a bunch of reasons. I mean, technically, it's one of those games where if I reflect back, it, I don't necessarily associate it with the PS2, even though mm-hmm. I played it, I think the week it came out. Sure. It's just like in my mind, it resonates um, as something so much more beautiful than the PS2 it's was capable than of. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also just thematically, narratively, mechanically, for something to come out at that time that was dealing with both like narrative and mechanics that wouldn't be the most commercially viable. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they knew that like Eco wasn't the most commercially viable, right? And apart from that game, there's really nothing else like it. And right, this is this is way before the indie boom, where you have people. Um, really experimenting with with different kind of mechanics and play styles, right? And it's again like it's it's kind of in the GTA era, like like we said last time, like Eco and GTA Three came out a few months apart, mm-hmm. and yet this this game that came out later in this world where GTA is still kind of dominating sales wise is so much the anti Grand Theft Auto against kind of the emerging tendency to just cram every inch of your world with stuff. <laughs> more is more. Yeah, the more is more philosophy, which in some ways, I mean, this isn't to kind of rag on GTA. Yeah, it does and, some things and we've right. talked about density being in sometimes yeah. a good quality in games, but not always. Yeah, but for this game to come out at that time and do everything, every choice it makes seems counterintuitive mm-hmm. to what is popular or seems commercially viable mm-hmm. and to to do as well as it did. I, I, I don't know. It's still like, I still find that surprising. Like, I think this game could come out today right, and people would still be 
impressed by what it does and what it does so differently. Right. And I, I actually wonder now that you've brought it up, if that's part of why I had a different experience with this than I was expecting to, which is that like I came up in the indie boom years. Like I'm very used mm-hmm. to games that play with uh, narrative structure like that. You know, like I mm-hmm. I'm used to things like this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and so while I still really like this in its specificity, I think this is a great instance of it. I, you know, you just can't recapture that surprise of when something like this hadn't really be, been done before if you weren't there at the time. Like you just can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, to go back to again to the game that you were playing around the same time as this, Death Stranding, I mean, I think you can see a lot of ideas from this game that Kojima riffs yeah. on a little bit in Death Stranding. Absolutely. Yeah, walking through an empty landscape. Yep. Is uh very much a Shadow of the Colossus kind of experience. Yep. But kind of related to this is this idea. Remember we talked last time that Ueda said that especially compared to Eco, he wanted to make this game more gamey because he was actually trying to reach a broader audience. Mm-hmm. So did you actually did you find this game at all gamey? Do you wish it were it included more traditional game elements? Uh, for example, more info on the HUD. That's oh my god, that came up no. No. The last thing I would want for this game is more is like a HUD. Like it just there's again, along with what we've been saying about the simplicity of the core loop and and the design and all that, there's essentially no information on the HUD except your stamina meter when you are using it, Mm -hmm. um, which is not always. And I think it just I love the the blunt objects of your sword and aggro and your bow. <laughs> yeah, your bow. And um and your wits. Like it it's just it's not a game of okay, what element is this thing weak to and mm-hmm. how do I get the right like stat multiplier on my weapon to face this thing? It's like it's just you have what you have. You are just you. You just have to look at it and figure it out. Um and I think that it feels so clean and mm-hmm. concrete and non um, nothing in it feels like a numbers game. It's not just like, oh, my strength isn't high enough. I have to go mm. level up. There's no leveling up. It's it's purely just you. You are this character. That's it. And it, yeah, and everything you need to know is communicated in the world, apart from, like you said, like the stamina meter mm-hmm. and your health gauge. Right. But everything else is just you paying attention to your environment, to your surroundings, to the movements of, of mm-hmm. the colossi. And that's all the information you need is is there. You don't need to use some kind of strange like wander vision to analyze <laughs> the weak point on the Colossus. Or like use the move scan to tell you all it's right. like, oh, it has uh, 2,800 HP and its weakness is to ice. And- right. Everything is kind of there and, yeah. and, and built in. Yeah. And so with that, let's take a short break and come back and talk about some of the Colossi in much more detail. Okay. And so we'll be right back.
Okay, we're back. So let's talk about some of these bosses that you fought. Okay, here's a weird question. Are they bosses? What do you mean? Well, okay. One of the we talked a bunch about boss fights in our setup episode for this, right? Yeah. And I feel like one of the main points that we landed on, uh, I am kind of reconsidering in light of Shadow, because I think the thing is, I basically do agree. I agree with you that these are like video game boss fights, right? But one of the one of our main criteria we said was that a, a boss fight should be a escalation and an intensification of the kinds of combat and verbs and activities that you're already doing in the regular parts of the game. Right. Or at least that I think that was our criteria for what we consider a good boss yeah, fight. Yeah. Or yeah, the yeah. ones that we enjoy the most. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't work if the only like the the boss fights in this are the baseline of like really what you're doing in the game. Like apart from just the navigation part, like it's not there's not there's not really an an escalating thing happening here. It's just like there there's no enemies in this that aren't the right. bosses. So like it's like the not to go back to my thing about the boss of what, but like <laughs> the boss of what? <laughs> right. Yeah, and just because of the nature of the structure of the game, they can't really satisfy the boss function in the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all of them are pretty distinct. So you're using different tools for each one. Yeah, I think, right, like the context of the history of video games in a vacuum, maybe these aren't bosses within the context of games and what people know of games. Yeah, these are. No, they're 100% recognizable as bosses. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's it's a good point, though, like in the absence of anything but the bosses, Mm -hmm. are they bosses? Um, And I I don't know. I think this kind of brings me back to um, what Ueda said when he compared this game to Zelda a little bit and he talked about the bosses as dungeons or how mm. the the colossi were kind of the inversion of Zelda bosses and that the boss whereas in Zelda you kind of go through the dungeon mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then use what you learned usually in that dungeon and whatever new items you gained in that dungeon to fight the boss yes I know about Zeldas now <laughs> right yeah <laughs> the, here um the boss and the dungeon are one and the same right exactly yeah including like the terrain that you're often the mm-hmm. thing you climb the most in this game is colossi. Right, right? Yeah. It's not like mountains or steps or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe one of the reasons that I really like the colossi then is because by kind of marrying dungeon with enemy, mm-hmm. the game eliminates the gap between game and boss fight, where right, they actually right. become the same thing. And it's usually that's where, you know, you see the game kind of working. Uh, yeah. Right, kind of. How, okay, how do we how do we take what the players learn and how do we make it work in the context of this fight? And there's mm-hmm. even in the best boss fights, there's always some kind of gap, right? There's there's something where as a player, your relationship to your character to your moveset shifts, and, and right. in this case, it doesn't because it it can't because everything is very much one coherent whole in the Colossus. Yeah, I like this idea a lot. This um this makes a lot of sense to me, and I think. Part of this is that, right in this case too, the bosses are extensions of the environment. Mm-hmm. They're not these aberrations. Yeah. And right, they're not these things that clearly exist just for you to fight them. They yeah. seem like they exist independently of you. No, it feels like a lot of them feel like finding an animal in its den. Mm-hmm. Like it's like this is the place where this would live. It it um is completely grounded. It makes complete sense. Uh, there's some sense of it being their terrain or their space. Like it, yeah. 
them as natural extensions of the environment also is exactly the right way to talk about them. Also, sometimes physically, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the first one that you fight literally looks like he stood up out of the middle of a building. Like there's like balconies hanging off his back uh, and all this stuff. And some of that's just to make them him climbable as the first one. But um, yeah, it's it's funny how literal that becomes at times. And I know before we talked about I mean, we've used the word, I mean, I guess a way to use it, right? Kind of gaminess, or he doesn't mm-hmm. want things to be gamey. Um, I don't, I, that's not the most useful word, but this is, but it's the word that comes to mind when thinking about what these colossi are not, right? That they're not clearly game mechanics. Right. Or things that exist just because they need to exist in a game. They really do feel like they're part of this world. Right. And so they are these huge things, but I feel so differently about these bosses than. We talked last time about set piece bosses, or like bosses you'd see in um, in something like a God of War, mm-hmm. or even like an Uncharted. And um, the experience of kind of encountering these things and then fighting them feels so much less directed than it does in right. those games, right? Where um, mis- mishaps can happen, but it still feels amazing to pull off what you're trying to do because you always feel vulnerable. You feel like. Mm-hmm you actually have to make the cool stuff happen in in the combat that it's not like the boss is working with you it's actually working it feels like it's working against you yeah 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 uh, it's they do not feel like playable cutscenes at all right yeah and and who knows what's actually happening right, right 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 but experientially that it does really feel like i have to make this happen this creature is existing it doesn't want me there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and i have to kind of scale it and then and mm-hmm. kill it um Sadly, but uh, yeah. coolly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I think the closest this game for me gets to having a tiny bit of that gaminess is I sort of wish that as you progressed through the Colossi, uh, it got a little bit less generous with marking where the vulnerable points are mm. on Colossi. Um, I did find myself getting in the habit of like, scoping them out and checking for where that like when you mm, hold mm-hmm. up the sword okay so we're gonna have to hit this guy's back and his arm and his head okay got it and like now i figure out how to get in there um i don't i don't really think this that negates anything else that we've said it's still there's still a lot of process in every case that you have to do to be able to get to those points like it's not solved once you figure out like okay the inside of his arm and like this point in the rib mm-hmm. um so i don't overall feel like that's cheap it's like just maybe the one little glimmer i got of like okay i've i've like got this down you know mm-hmm. you know yeah maybe this is a good uh way to segue into talking about the general boss loop because mm-hmm. um, there's the game loop and then each boss itself because the boss does almost serve as this dungeon right um has kind of its own gameplay loop and you really just you kind of work through the same process with all of them mm-hmm. where you do exactly what you said you identify the weak point then you try to identify how you're going to reach the weak point. Mm-hmm. And then you do some stamina management yeah. <laughs> to, to scale the Colossus. Uh, and then you do your actual right. attack. Although I'll insert one funny thing here, which is that in a for a couple of the Colossi, including uh, the second to last massive one, which I think is the biggest one in the game and uh, and malice at the end. It was not so much a let's look and strategize. How am I going to get to that point? It was like, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Like, just start doing stuff and see what happens. See how it responds. Try to find a path forward, uh, sometimes physically, like through ruins and stuff as a Colossus is smashing them up and changing the layout and where you can go. So 
there were interesting points in this where it was like much less strategic and much just less and much more like, let's just keep trying to do mm. the next thing. What can I do now? Let's just try some things. Let's like keep moving forward. Keep like trying different stuff until we figure out how to sequence things to get the Colossus to react in the way that I want to, to be able to get to that vulnerable point. Okay. So moving maybe from more deliberate puzzle solving mm-hmm. to moment by moment problem solving. <laughs> yeah. Like definitely by the, the um, I think it's the second last one or the last one before the, the final, final guy who's different. You're in this big, uh, there's like three or four story tall ruins on either side of this long passage. And you have to get him to hit a platform to like launch you up so you can get up into them. And then you have to keep making him smash things to change how, which levels you can get to. And they have to make him take out a bridge. There's like all these stages and kind of at every stage, I was like, I'm not sure what this is doing, but it's doing so like, let's see what, what opens up. I mean, what's so interesting about that is that is technically that's just a multi-stage boss fight. Right. But it's, it works so much more fluidly. Yes. And it's so much less of a, okay, now you're in stage one, you hit him three times mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. he morphs into something else and now you're in stage two, right? It's more of, again, like a level as a boss. Yeah, and absolutely. That, and that it unfolds in in a natural, almost organic manner, at least as the player, you don't notice it as abruptly. Totally. Um, the one thing I do want to talk about that I think makes this game really unique is the stamina meter. Mm-hmm. Because really, that's the challenge of, I mean... Figuring out how to scale the boss and then managing your stamina yeah. is really what the main mechanic is, um, much more so than stabbing, for example. Yeah, the stamina that you're using to hang on, to not be shaken off, mm-hmm. to climb things. And it's also your breath when you're underwater. Right, yeah. yeah. And really it's that, I mean, it's the it's being flung around yeah. and knowing that you can fall off at any moment. Yeah, after you've done all this work to like get up to a certain point, like on this massive thing. Yeah, like it really helps reinforce the sense of scale with these colossi. And risk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what what did you think about that as a as kind of a mechanic, having to manage your stamina? Um, was it something that you felt got in the way of some of the enjoyment, even if it did cause? No, I loved it. I, I loved some it. Some exhilaration, yeah. I loved it at every point. And I think it was necessary in this game because if I just think without that, you lose the thrill of the ways that they resist you. And I Mm, think like mm -hmm. the physicality of how the Colossi resist you in this game is such a huge part of the appeal. It's what makes them feel alive. Like Mm, mm -hmm. the fact that they're trying to shake you off and they can shake you off. I got shook off a couple of times. Um, The fact that they uh, are going to dive deep underwater to try to run you out of out of breath and stamina and to break up you you aren't just grabbing onto one once and going to town on mm-hmm. it um it helps really keep you ever from feeling like you are stronger than them mm-hmm. at every point in this game you feel like they are stronger than you and you're succeeding despite that um so yeah i think this game needs it i think it uses it super well um it's not that it never was challenging but it never felt frustrating or arbitrary and i never felt that there was a colossus that abused it to lock me up mm-hmm. in a way that wasn't like fair or well designed yeah and there i don't know there's just something so fun about the simple strategizing of mm-hmm. do i take three extra steps yeah. or do i hedge my bets and grab on now <laughs> yep, exactly do i wait here to recharge my stamina meter or do yeah. i try to rush the weak point yeah like retreating back from a boss's head to stand on its mm-hmm. shoulders where you don't need to hang on for a second to recharge and then like okay 
then yeah. climb back up while it's like shaking. Um, yeah, all that stuff is is really, really good. I'm I'm so impressed with across this number of bosses, how well it keeps this stuff from feeling old or feeling unfair or feeling super off balance. Like what we have really are a long stretch of really well-designed guys. Yeah. And so before we get into those guys, I do want to go back to the stamina, stamina meter briefly because you, apart from killing the Colossi, you never increased it. You refused to kill the lizards. Yeah. Um, so if you don't know, if you, you can kill these lizards and they increase your grip strength, which is really the most valuable resource in the game. And Michelle just, I told her that and she just refused. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about this for a minute in the context of this game's themes. What does this game think about gratuitously killing things for your own myopic goals? Thinks you got to do it. It no Wander thinks you got to do it. That's the game does not think you got to do it. You're playing Wander. Right, but I the player am playing the game also. So like Okay, let even just for a second, thinking that I the worst you can accuse me of here is a failure to role play because Wander 100% Wander would kill anything, I think, to increase his chances of succeeding in this mission by 2%. Like, I think Wander is ready to nuke a city over this, right? Um, but like then, how would Wander know that killing these lizards is going to improve his grip strength like that? It doesn't make sense either if you're like trying to look at it through his eyes. I just don't, I don't like this. I think this is dumb. Honestly, I think it's dumb. And also, okay, the thing that saves this for me, actually, and the reason why I don't, in the end, dock the game major points for this, even though I think it rubs against the entire thrust of the game, is I was still able to beat this game despite not building up that um, stamina meter. So I think, like, this works for me in the end because... I don't have to have done, I would have had an easier time, sure, but like I still got through it. It didn't it didn't force me or block me off from places because it's like, oh, you should have upgraded your stamina by now. Like you're not we talked about bosses as um as tests or like gatekeepers before you can go on to the next thing to make sure you're leveled up or whatever. This game is not doing that with stamina. It's like it's purely you can tough your way through it. Um and I respect that as a design choice and a balancing thing. Man, you really hate having to think of yourself as Wander. <laughs> I, yeah, this was like not a seamless RP for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start talking about some of the specific Colossi. You've mentioned okay. a few, but maybe let's start with the first one, your first introduction to the Colossi. Yeah. So these don't have official names. Michelle gave some of them unofficial names just, they have, you have to describe them somehow they have fan names that seem to be official okay so those are the ones that i'll use that's where malice came from for the last right 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 yeah the last colossus yeah and so the first one that we see we should start there is valis okay and so what was your what was your introduction to these beasts so this it introduces them so so well like you you come into this clearing where this this thing is and you just you have this close up of wander as as the colossus is brushing past these trees and like it's walking past you and away from you and you just you look up at it and it is taller than the surrounding cliffs it's broader than any other structure in sight and um you have the opportunity if you want a braver person than i 
could like basically run up behind it and just start chasing it. Uh, and it won't notice you. You were too small to notice. Um, what I did is try to stealth around and observe it. Like I tried to watch it from like behind a tree, <laughs> which like cover is not really a thing in this game, but I didn't know. And then definitely I, not for this guy. Not for this guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I tried to like creep along the side of the cliff. Um, but I was still so scared. All he did was walk in a circle. He does not care about. No, you. he's so indifferent to you. He couldn't care less. That you're right. There. So it, it really it starts you out where you're clearly an invader, yeah. the intruder. You're transgressing on his space. He this, does not want to fight you. Right. He's chilling. Uh, and so eventually, I was like, okay, I guess I have to. I guess I have to go for it. And then ran up close to him and realized the first thing you have to do is get up on his leg and attack. You basically cut his Achilles tendon, right? Which also like really fits with like the the big sort of mythology feel of, of this game. And then as soon as you do that, he starts to go down. He like falls forward and like he just it, it is a super short cutscene. It's probably like three seconds, but he falls forward like onto sort of his hands and knees ish. He's a bipedal. And he like his weight busts up the ground like you get to feel like you're you're not as tall at the bottom of his foot. Like it's so good. And so you climb up him and you he's sort of standing up and you're scaling him to get up to his back and start attacking these vulnerable points. And he has these like big chunks of like building like he has like balconies off his waist. Yeah, like, this guy is a good tutorial colossus. He's so good. Right, yeah. You get there. It's. It's clearly communicated. I mean, the game does give you a little bit of kind of text or dormant mm -hmm, mm -hmm. tells you kind of what to do, right? Shine your sword. Yeah. And that'll push R1. Too. <laughs> and the sword will, will kind of locate the weak point and then you stab that. Yeah. But even if it didn't have that, I think right, stabbing him in the Achilles tendon and making him kind of topple over that just makes, makes sense. Kind of, yeah. yeah, just makes sense. And then, yeah, having those like nice stamina resting balconies yeah. <laughs> on his <laughs> up his body. Yeah. Again, they look like they actually belong on him. Yeah, it makes sense, weirdly. But still, it's it just really helps you out as you learn the systems and you learn to how, to, how to manage your stamina. Yeah, because you're climbing up the fur, like on his mm -hmm. back, up to his shoulders. And then he has a little bit of a furry, like, neck and head. And mm -hmm. you can get up there and that's where the second, where the last vulnerability point is. Yeah, like, it's perfect in that it's teaching you the systems. It's making it, it's giving you a relatively easy... Mm -hmm. first run but it's not you still feel like you're accomplishing something by by toppling him. and i think significantly um you are on his head when he falls mm -hmm. you were standing looking at how high up you are compared to all the surroundings mm -hmm. as you like drive that blow and like so for the first guy too to have you one stab him in the achilles tendon and then stab him right in the head and what you was see his face also. He's like the camera moves mm. around. So you you like see his like eyes and his his whole like. Yeah. What was what was your reaction to especially that stab? I like I think I forgot how gruesome this game was. Oh, you don't... blood spurts out like a. Yeah, I don't think I, I did not remember that. And it was so much more impactful than I had remembered. And and so much kind of just grosser. It's it, very uh, tactile. It's very yeah, like physical. It, in like terms of like gory and in terms of like your action was gross. Yeah. 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 It's brutal, I think is the word. Mm -hmm. Like there's a brutality to it. And like, you know, the blood can like obscure your vision from some, like it's, it's, yeah. So we're not going to go through every Colossus in oh detail. Oh my God, no. Instead, Michelle's selected some of the best and worst. Yeah. 
of no, the Colossi? My favorites, her favorites and least favorites. Her it's favorites. different than best and worst. Okay. She selected her favorites and least favorites. Yeah. And uh, so we can go through some of the highlights and and the and the low points um, for her. So in these are kind of not in the order we'll, we experience them in the game, but uh, we'll try to set up who they are, what they are as best yeah. we can. So the first one is... Uh, this uh, is a favorite. Yeah. Well, I was about to say, this is a counterexample because this is both my probably my favorite and also i think objectively one of the best <laughs> which uh i've been calling hot air bags yeah i guess his, his real name is phalanx he's the 13th colossus yeah it is so fun pulling up on him on argo holy shit agro i keep calling this dumb horse argo You're just a huge ben affleck fan oh no it makes sense also that he'd be called argo because jason the argonauts whatever it doesn't matter so he's the one that that is like the long sky dragon serpent thing with the wings and the the uh, hot air bags under his belly. So he starts out under the sand. You see, he's like a tremor. Like he's like you see you you have to sort of bait him with with aggro. Um, and actually, there's these like arch things in the sand. At first, I thought you had to like somehow like kite him in through those and get him stuck. Um, but then he takes off and he's this massive flying guy. He's so, so big. Um, and you have to shoot the shoot and sort of pop and deflate the the airbags um, that are on his belly so that he'll come back down low to the ground. And then you can ride up on him on Argo Agro. Oh my God. And uh and jump onto his wings and then he'll take back to the sky. You got a couple of points you gotta hit on his back, but if you take too long, which you will. Um, he's gonna dive bomb back at the sand and just, you're, you're just gonna get like driven right off him. Like you're gonna bounce right off that sand and he's gonna go back into this sort of tremor stage where you gotta, again, lure him up into the air. It's just like, it's so exhilarating. It's so exciting. It's all communicated visually. So so here's the thing. This guy's awesome. Yeah. And if you look kind of online, because I, I wanted to see what other people, how other people rank the Colossi, mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. how they compare it to your list. Your list actually deviates quite a bit, but this is the one that by and large is almost consensus top, definitely top five, He's if so not good. top two or three. He's so good. Um, but here's the thing. I'm, I'm looking at this guy today. Uh-huh. Remember last time we talked about how I like that stupid bio lizard in... Sonic Adventure 2, even though he's a terrible boss. Yeah. He's this just this big giant lizard in space with the huge boils that you have to go and pop. <laughs> so I'm looking at this guy, your hot airbag. Yeah. And it's like, oh, like th- this <laughs> guy's like, objectively an awesome boss. Yeah. But like, it's so clearly marked kind of where the weak points are. He's got these huge, they're hot airbags, but they look like these huge boils off his body. And you got- They look like buoyancy bags. I'm just thinking of my lizard. Okay. Okay. <laughs> he's also a, he's also this flying lizard thing. But it's it's like communicated in that almost it's like if if the if the design of him wasn't so great, mm-hmm. it would almost be this vulgar way of communicating what the right. weak point is. Right. right? But right. it's just that it, it actually works so well with the design that right. it doesn't jump off as these huge like lesions on him. Right, right. Well, okay, but one thing I want to say about this, I do think it's different because they aren't they aren't vulnerability point like you're not damaging him when you pop them they are some of the things that you get the sense are biologically helping him fly in a strong way like i think they're actually meant to be for buoyancy right and this is this is kind of the point i wanted to make is that 
it's not this stupid lizard with boils. Right, right, right. Because it works so well within kind of the world, right? Mm-hmm. That it's this, it's this creature that exists within the world. Yeah, I think this is also a moment where, you know, when I was saying earlier that like, I kind of wish we in some ways evolved to a more subtle mm-hmm. thing than just like find the glowing mm-hmm. blue parts and stab them. I think like these things aren't blue. They're not glowing. They're just a noticeable part of his physiology that you can see from the ground. And so I think this is a moment where it succeeded in doing a little bit of what Mm -hmm. I was asking for with that, which is like, let me figure out how to interact with these things without it just being find the blue. Yeah. But also like this, this action of popping those bags, which would be a bot, the boss fight in most games Mm -hmm. is really the worst part of this fight. Yeah. Right. It's (laughs) once he starts coming down and you can stand on top of aggro. Yeah. And you're you're kind of racing beside Driving him. Driving him like as fast as you can. And again, the camera is sometimes annoying, but here it actually... It's perfect. It's perfect. Um, and then you can jump off and grab onto his wings and then climb up and he starts flying away with you. Yeah. It's again, it, right? It's one of those moments that it doesn't feel scripted, but it it looks perfectly scripted. It's, it's so cool. And then it's as you're, so cool. And then as you're navigating on top of his body as he's flying around and again, trying to manage your grip. Yeah, and he's like twisting. He'll, he'll throw you off mm-hmm. in the air. He does like loop the loops. Like at points, you'll find yourself suddenly upside down and just hanging and like, okay, like managing your stamina is so much more mm-hmm. challenging. And this is like a later boss. But yeah, there's just, there's so much, there's so much here. Yeah, and I think what, what really makes this boss special for me is that he's really just doing he is taking all these other boss tropes and just doing them to perfection Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like there's nothing there's no idea that is completely unique even at the time of this game's release to this boss except for maybe the the grabbing on the fly like that i i had never seen before it's so cool (laughs) Um, but in terms of what the kind of the basic structure of the boss is Mm -hmm. it's just it's tropes but done incredibly well and and kind of demonstrating that yeah right these tropes exist and you can still have a fresh twist on them and and these bosses can still be exciting yeah um but yeah that's one of the i think the consensus great boss i think i think one of the greatest bosses ever so that one's super exhilarating that one's easy yeah this next one that you you've picked is kind of um a unique case for you this is one of the smaller colossi and usually those get tossed aside because they're so much less visually impressive at least from a scale level sure i think for me sometimes they ended up being a little bit refreshing in the mm. like they feel like something different in this game right, and they're not a lot of them i think they're, no, they're only, only two couple. right uh maybe i'd say three that are smaller size because there's the there's the little one in the fire temple mm-hmm. that you have to scare and then there's um i would say yeah anyway this this one, which I've been calling Bulldog Ramming Speed. So this is number 14. This is Zenobia. Yeah. So with this little one, it really looks like a, a like a bulldog shape, but it's like it's fast. I think it's faster than any of the other ones that um that you've met so far. Uh and I've just set this up by saying, I don't know why, but from the start of this game, I kept every time I met a new Colossus, I thought I was going to have to make him run into something to break his armor. I kept thinking this was going to have to be a strategy. And I think I said this out loud to multiple times. Like, when am I going to have to make a guy run into stuff to break his armor? Let me tell you when. Bulldog ramming speed is when. And like, it's late in the game. I waited so long to do this. (laughs) And they just gave me the most satisfying guy to do it with and the most satisfying setup. Like, the big thing is so... one of one of the main things you have to do in this fight is there's a bunch of you're you're really in these like ruins like much more 
much more city or temple-like ruins than usual. It's not a big open flat plain like a lot of these bosses. And there are all these pillars that are standing up and you have to climb these pillars, um, use your bow to provoke bulldog ramming speed into ramming the pillar to try to knock you off. But then the pillar falls and often it falls in a way that you can get back up on the fallen down one and jump to something you couldn't get to before. So you're gradually having the thing damage itself, working towards breaking off its armor. But the thing that ruled and was like some of the most fun I had with this game, there's this sequence where it's just pillar to pillar. And if you actually time it right and like do it well, you can have this sequence where you just go straight from one pillar and as the pillar's falling, you jump right off the top and you can catch the next, get right back up to the top and then get it to hit that one straight into the next one. Like you just can do this sequence where it all comes together so quickly and so fluidly and you're just going straight from one thing to the next. Like, But it doesn't okay, have you know, to. No, it doesn't have to. It's it's very easy to not make those ju- and just fall and like get back stand back up on the pillar that has fallen that's now on its right, but side. But in your case, you kind of executed it perfectly. Right. This is the opposite of the Metal Gear Solid <laughs> problem where it was like Snake's slapstick journey. This was like I finally felt like I executed a sick action sequence just because I did it well. <laughs> it felt so good. And so eventually you get this, you get Bulldog Ramming Speed to ram into a pillar that is actually supporting a whole platform. The whole stone platform falls on him, finally breaks off his armor. And then it unleashes this like dual battle. Cause it's just you on the ground running through these ruins with this really fast, nimble um, thing that does not want you on its back. So now it's got a vulnerable spot on its back. You have to find a way to get up on it as it's running around. It's going to aggressively try to shake you off. It's going to run into stuff. It's going to run all over the place. Um, It just, it's a very distinct fight in this game where you can get used to scale is the thing. And so it just, it feels like such a swap. It still completely makes sense in this world. It's still absolutely a shadow of the Colossus boss. It's still big relative, like compared to other video game bosses, it's still big. It's just not, you know, it's not like hot airbags. It's just a fun ass time. It's just like a good, it's a good time, honestly. (laughs) And I don't think that's a universal experience. I think I remember this guy being kind of annoying, um, (laughs) probably because I didn't execute the the platforming jumps (laughs) perfectly. (laughs) Okay, so who else have you got in the in the in your favorites? Well, so quickly, I want to shout out Colosseum Asus, which is okay. So that's uh, (laughs) number eight, Kuromori. Yeah, he's He's in a Colosseum. Yeah, he's in like a gladiator Colosseum. Um, I did not do this the way I guess most people did. I like lured him around and then stabbed him in the belly through a window. (laughs) But um, I still really liked it. Uh, the one that I want to talk about, though, is one that was uh, salient for me because of specific things that happened in my playthrough, not necessarily anything really fundamentally mm. about the Colossus, but it shaped my relationship with this game. And so I want to bring up the Grave Deer. Okay, so this is an early one. This is uh, Phaedra, the fourth Colossus. Yeah. And what's interesting is I've seen this one rank pretty low on on people's rankings that... Uh, very few people have this near the top or think it's memorable at all. So I guess this really is uh, an experience that's yours. Yeah. Um, and yeah, fair enough. So this one, it's not the biggest. It's not. It it looks very much like a deer and it has that kind of uh, ambulatory 
um, language. It has these two long uh, hanging, almost like warhorse decoration things that hang from its its muzzle, like Pigtails. its front. Okay, uh, they hang from the muzzle, not from where pigtails come from. But um, <laughs> so the the basic thing that you have to do with this guy is is you um, there's in his his space there's these basically like cross tunnels. It's like an X with four different entrances, and you basically want to lure him over to the entrance of one, run through the the like ruins, the tunnels, pop out the other side opposite it, run up his back, and, and get on him. I think. At this point, I was starting to evolve in my relationship with Agro, and one of the things that I had really been paying attention to as I was in the exploring phase for this boss was Agro's movement and his animation. And I think, I don't know why, but I just, I had been paying so much attention to him and his body and how he works with Wander and how he feels. Uh, so he was just on my mind. And so I think I was a little unnerved by the similarities I saw between hmm. this boss's movement and aggro. It became very hard for me not to compare hmm. those bodies and and the animality of those two hmm. creatures in this game and the different relationships that I was choosing to have with them. So... I was very, this thing also feels gentle. Like it will attack you, but it just, again, I think it's just something about deer. Like it, it, oh, it's this, different. It, it's not like a guy with a club, you know? Right. No, this one, especially because it is so early, is one of your first introductions to a boss that's almost purely a puzzle boss mm -hmm. who's much, it's not, it's not so much uh, like a duel or, mm -hmm. or a combat setting at, in as much as it's you having to kind of observe its behavior. Yeah. And then in this case, right, exploit its curiosity. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Because you, so you, you, that's exactly it. Thank you so much that I hadn't, that piece hadn't clicked for me until right now. So it's curious about you. Like, sure, it's probably also because it's supposed to defend this place or whatever. But like, one of the ways you can get onto it is by like, letting it see which of the entrances you're about to go into getting just inside the door of it. And then what it'll do is it'll walk up behind the entrance and lean its big, sad deer face down, like over the entrance to like, look at where you went and you can run out right then and jump and grab onto its hanging, like Dimitri calls them pigtails and climb up to its face and stab it in the brain. Like it's, it's just, it's this, like, it is this curiosity. That's so exactly what it is. And for me, when this thing goes down, it, this one also just felt like it didn't, it really didn't want to die. It wasn't aggressive and shaking me off. I just like, this one, I just, I couldn't fight the feeling that like, this is bad. This is like where the wrongness most hit me. And when it falls, it happens that this one, I don't know if this is in every shot of, of how this one goes down or if it's where I was or whatever, but it falls forward and it, its legs kind of buckle backwards and it's like... I just ended up with this shot of this cloven hoof that just looked mm. like a horseshoe to me, like pointed right at me. And it just reinforced all this stuff that was percolating for me about aggro and wander in this space and, and all that. And I just found it really affecting. So all of that, you know, that's not that didn't all happen because this is an incredibly designed boss necessarily. It just was a moment that a bunch of stuff about this game mm -hmm. really congealed for me and some serendipitous stuff happened that made it 
that felt like a moment the game wanted me to have, whether that's true or not. No, I think that's how this boss works. Um, and especially because it is one of the earlier ones, I think it's meant to work more as a thematic boss than as some kind of uh, right exemplar of boss fight. Right, right. right that it, it's thematic purposes and really how it it's one of the first ones, maybe apart from the first one, where you're really reflecting on the complex morality that this game is kind of bringing you as the player into. Yeah. Whether Wander is feeling that or not. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, with the first with Valis, even though you do feel sympathetic, you do have that exhilaration of it being your first mm-hmm, Colossus. Mm-hmm. And he he is kind of still this threatening, imposing yeah. giant. He's sort thing. of like a like a um, brute shape. Yeah. Yeah. But we're, this is really, I think, the first one that is just gentle animal. Yeah. Um, yep. Who's just being a gentle animal. Yeah. Um, and you have to learn its behaviors and exploit those behaviors to to kill it. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. So yeah. Um, so with that, maybe if one of your worst or, or okay. Well, first I have to say, I hate every water boss in this. <laughs> the water in this game is so scary. I already am afraid of everything that's underwater and also open water, which this game does the fear of open water thing so hugely. The eel boss terrifying. Don't make me get in that water. There's more water bosses after that. No. No. <laughs> yeah, I I stupidly forgot about another water boss and said that the eel one was the only so Hydra uh was the o- or Hydras, I guess is the the name sure. people give it. It was the only water one and uh I was so mad when you were, really you were mad. wrong. I was so mad. Okay, but um I I don't think that's the worst boss. Tamatoa is the worst boss. So this is uh, the rock crab, uh, Basarin, the ninth, the ninth uh, Colossus, the geyser Colossus. This guy can go eat rocks. He's <laughs> this one has like a fire beam that's like hard to dodge. You have to maneuver on aggro, but it's not like the sandworm thing where aggro will do a good job of navigating. You have to shoot backwards. You have to steer aggro forwards. You have to avoid its stupid dumb fireballs. You have to kite this thing over so that it like does its crab walk and aligns itself over these geysers that shoot up from the ground, but they don't just keep shooting up. They like go down and then come back. So you can like overshoot and then it doesn't catch it. So you want these geysers to shoot up and knock this dumb crab over kind of on its side. Then you have to run in close, shoot this tiny point on the bottom of two of its feet. So it falls over and then do this complicated climbing up the side of it. Uh, And then, then, To its credit, you have the one cool thing that it does, which is you have to kind of keep scaling it over the over its side while it's correcting itself and getting back standing mm. upright. And so it's really easy to get thrown off and the pace and the gravity and all that stuff is that part's cool. The rest of this game, the rest of this boss, I don't appreciate. Mostly the fiddly part of getting it over the geyser. Mm-hmm. I did not have a fun time with this boss. No, this boss sucks. Yeah, it's one of these that it's it has maybe too many ideas going on at once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's and it's great in theory and the visual of the geyser pushing him up and him balancing on his legs is is fantastic. It's cool in theory. Um but yeah, I I, I definitely see where you're coming from in, in that it's just kind of fiddly. It's hard to get him over the geyser. Yeah. It's he's also blasting you and you have to run with with aggro. There's maybe too much going on. Especially when the visibility is so poor. Yeah. Because you're in this fog. The steamy sort of, yeah. Yeah. That, no thank you. No thanks. <laughs> so I guess maybe as a way to to wrap up, now that you've highlighted some of your favorites and least favorites, what are the big takeaways that you have from these bosses? 
Are there any gameplay ideas that you'd like to see people experiment with in the future? Have you learned more about your own relationship to boss fights, things you like, you don't like? Kind of reflecting on our discussion in the last episode. So a thing that I love about these bosses is comes from, I think, the fact that they are essentially a living puzzle and not in any sense an HP sponge. Mm -hmm. So a huge thing for me in this game that I loved and, and kept loving to the end is they all feel finite. They all feel defeatable, but none of them feel easy. There's no, there's literally no way in this game to become like overpowered or like OP. Like usually because of the way I play games, including doing side quests and stuff, by the time I'm getting to like the end game, I'm so overpowered that I'm going to like steamroll a lot of guys. There's never a point in this game because of how the bosses are set up where you either A, won't be able to kill a boss because your sword doesn't have high enough attack power or like your strength modified. Like it's never a math game. And also simultaneously, you'll never get to the point where you're just like so strong that a boss is trivial. Like that, that just doesn't happen. This is, is so much more about the, the concrete and, and as we said, brutal act of figuring out what is the vulnerability? How to manipulate the behavior? Where's the gap? Where can I get in and do damage? Um, I think that is so smart. It it avoided so many of the pitfalls that turn me off of bosses, um, including some of those things about just arbitrary, stupid difficulty spikes where it's like, why, why are we here? Why are we doing this? Like it felt so integrated and sensical, and I love that so much. One thing I dislike, fiddly shit. Just like we've little, established that, yeah, little <laughs> dumb like, ooh, get him just over the right point where you're not gonna. You should be generous with like the hit detection or hit box if mm. you're gonna make me do something like that. Like, be if I'm close enough to the geyser or he's got like a foot on it, that should be enough. Not like, oh, it'll erupt right beside you and then you can. Yeah, I don't like Tamatoa, <laughs> but yeah, I on the whole, I'm I'm so impressed by. Like, what game delivers you 16 good bosses? When does that happen? Just this one. Yeah, just this one. Just this one. <laughs> yeah. So now that Michelle has come to terms with her relationship with bosses, I think feels like uh, the employee-boss relationship has been fixed, resolved. Well. <laughs> Let's take a quick break and uh, come back and talk more about the emotional aspects of this game and maybe a bit about the big topic of games as art. Uh. I promise... We'll try to not make it as annoying as that kind of conversation <laughs> usually is. So on our last episode, we talked about how for a lot of reviewers or people in games journalism at the time, this game and Eco Before It really stood out as being some of the first games that made people at least reflect on the emotional relationship they have with games and their characters. Never felt a feeling before those <laughs> games. <laughs> and so I guess um, 
We can kind of simply turn that on you. Did did this game have some kind of emotional impact on you? Because I, I know that's one of the things that you came into this game knowing about the game is that it makes people feel feelings. Yeah. So sure. Yes, it did. I think I think I got in my own way a lot with this one because um, definitely I can say that I had a persistent sense of unease, which I think is the right thing to feel. But I think I I was very stressed in this game about whether I was feeling the right thing, which is just awful. Um, what I what worked on me best were some of the subtler emotional beats, I think. And of course, like losing aggro was huge. The the ending, like I I, rem- I thought it was effective and a good ending, but I didn't have that emotional reaction to it. So I don't know. I think I psyched myself out. I think I I think I uh, and this will probably be a repeating thing that we'll have to. Yeah, it's already given me different ways. Flashbacks to our Link's Awakening chat. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. I was thinking about that too. Yeah, where it seems like, especially because you psych yourself out and wait for a specific moment or moment. Yeah, when in this case, I think it's just a general tone that permeates the game is what people really refer to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, you were waiting for those key moments, and I mean, I didn't help by. Planting the seed of aggro dying in your head. Which I was then dreading and waiting for the entire time. Yes. So that's on me. I'll try not to do that in the future. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I got the tone. Tone, 100%. The moodiness, yes. Um, I I don't know how much my experience of the feeling of this game um, matched up with what I was expecting based on reputation. I guess at the very least, did you feel some kind of bond with aggro as a companion character? So I kind of felt bad for aggro throughout. And um I think a lot of the a lot of the power behind him dying, like the moment when that happens, uh, I think probably would have been there for me even with a less developed horse character. Uh so yeah, I don't know how I don't know how to feel about this in the end. It's so funny to me how much your inability, and I don't mean that as like a flaw, uh-huh. but your inability to to relate to wander in any capacity <laughs> has really defined this experience for it's you. True. It's and it true. is right and I think it's different even if you're watching this as a movie at the very least maybe you could give yourself over to the to the narrative but mm-hmm. because you have to be this character it seems for you there's just there's just this wall. <laughs> I mean, I Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a little bit. I mean, I I think I still can appreciate what the game is and do- like I think it's not fatal for this game to me that I didn't have this big big tearjerker thing at the ending, right? Like there's so much to like and respect about this game and admire about its beauty and its tone and all this stuff, even without like needing to be like, oh, I boohooed my way all through. You know what I mean? I, like there's more here than just that. Uh, it's not the notebook, the game. Um so yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't think that breaks my relationship with this game. Yeah. Okay. So maybe another way then to reframe this discussion is to tie it into a discussion of a larger question: this games as art discussion. Oh. I bring it up only because so Shadow is one of the early games that really made people try to articulate that video games could be considered an art form, mm-hmm. and when Roger Ebert wrote that screed that games could never be art, right. This is one of maybe the game that came up the most, actually, in okay. terms of a, of a counterexample at that time. So we're not going to have this debate about whether games are art. 
Uh, but I think we should talk a bit about games as art. Okay. Like the emotion question. <laughs> I think it's kind of a stupid question up front, right? Because especially in this case, it ultimately depends on how you define game and right. how you define art. Right. And how you try to find ways to squeeze those definitions <laughs> yeah. to support the conclusions that you want to come to, or at least that's often how what this devolves into. Yeah. But I think having this discussion is still kind of useful for us individually mm -hmm. because it gets us to really think through and articulate what we see as potentially artful within games, or at least forces us to come to terms with our own definition of art. Hmm. And for me, I think one of the other problems of just this question and usually how it's framed generally, um, and especially in terms of somebody like Ebert, is that there's problems inherent of thinking about games in direct relation to other artistic media mm -hmm. and as a lesser version of cinema. And I, like, I don't know. And it, I mean, we've taken on this discussion quite a bit, right? Games as cinematic. Right, right. Which is a discussion that happens. But Again, the question is, why do we keep forcing this comparison? Because it, it is ultimately a, a lazy con comparison, right? To not treat games as their own thing. Mm -hmm. Or at the very least, if we need to compare them with something, it seems strange that we choose cinema rather than other forms of art that it clearly draws from, like you could like painting or sculpture. Right. right. We're moving through with now anyway, like a three-dimensional space. Right. So or maybe architecture. Right. Right. That there's all of these artistic elements that are part of our experience. And it's not just purely cinematic. Dance and choreography. Absolutely. And yeah. 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 Um, performance. Sure. Right. And, and even doing that is kind of, I don't know, kind of stupid because then we'd have to take each game on a case by case basis and, and to see where it can map onto something more familiar. Mm -hmm. And really, this is and this is kind of what drives me especially nuts about Ebert's piece is because this is the exact same thing people did to cinema <laughs> right <laughs> for over 50 years and so like dude you know better <laughs> like people just took cinema said well it's a lesser form of these other art forms that we already like know theater or photography exactly. or something. Yeah. okay yeah instead of taking it as its own thing and and that kind of evolved over time and it's it seems like the blinders were on that he couldn't see that he was doing the same thing that happened to his preferred medium yeah it's interesting this kind of reminds me of um the arc that we were talking about early on that a lot of people go through when i think they start playing games or exploring a new medium, which is you kind of want to import the interpretive tools that you mm -hmm. have from a different medium that feels similar to you. And I do want to show, you know, it's on a screen. Like we interact with games on the same screen that we watch TV and that we watch movies on. And and like I get a lot of where that comes from. And I wonder if if what you're talking is sort of similar to the pattern that I think I and a lot of people go through with games where at the start you're like, the stories we can tell in mm -hmm. games and that's it's a really a narrative driven um set of interpretive tools that we have until we start getting more into the idea of what a game is which often is much more about the verbs and what we're doing and our sort of emergent experience as we go through it yeah and i think coming into this from kind of narrative as a starting point as i think a lot of people did and which makes perfect sense mm -hmm. right? but then i think what happens and I, partly you could see it happen in terms of shadow of the colossus and how people talk about it um is that there's just kind of a conflation of emotion and art right right like, a lot of people's like a lot of the arguments about shadow of the colossus that i saw at the time and went back to confirm just kind of made this leap between well this game made me feel something therefore it must be art mm-hmm which I think is underselling this game and games in general quite a bit. It's also, it's continually interesting to me what 
emotions or feelings we categorize and describe as emotions or feelings and which ones we don't. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, it's like so stupid that I'm hesitant to even say, like, every game I have ever played has pretty much, except for extremely boring ones, has made me feel (laughs) some emotions. Like, frustration is an emotion. Anger is an emotion. Like, joy and and uh that stuff is like these are mm-hmm. mundane game feelings are feelings but when we when we're talking about art emotions we're talking about something like um <laughs> sadness or like we're conflating like something we feel is more sophisticated mm-hmm. as like what feeling really is i don't know it's it's this weird scoping thing where we're like no this set this is the art emotions right or like this game or in terms of shadow right made people feel conflicting emotions that right. they were having fun but also were feeling sadness and dread and guilt right, right 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 and hope right and right kind of conflicting morality which is all fair and good but it also seems like a pretty low bar just having conflicting <laughs> emotions and again i think undersells what this game actually does because i think this yeah, that game meets those criteria, but I think this game also surpasses yeah. those criteria. I agree. I agree. Uh, so maybe before getting into Shadow specifically, we can talk a bit about how we evaluate games as art and what criteria we use, just as a way to kind of tease out our own definition. So for me, it's when you're talking about games, it really is all about form over content, or at least the marriage of form and content. Mm-hmm. And I know that's annoying, pretentious, but whatever. That's how I feel. Um, <laughs> But I and I okay, so I get how hypocritical this sounds because, as I mentioned within the Metal Gear Solid arc, right, <laughs> I tend to hate arguments that always kind of default to X game or X movie is actually about okay, the medium yeah, yeah, itself. Yeah. yeah, but like I also really like things that actually do that. <laughs> However, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like for real, not in a like look at the back of the jewel case sort of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right to be fair to Kojima, I think he does some legitimate interrogation of form stuff in some of his games. Mm-hmm. But we just can't pretend that all those stupid tricks are equal. Are equal yeah. But some of those sometimes Listen, we don't have to get into this again. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes there are good tricks that really do interrogate the art form. And as I mentioned before, I really think that Shadow does that, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. And so I guess in terms of form and content, this really comes. So this is, I don't know, have you heard ludonarrative dissonance as a term floated about? Okay. So this is a term that emerged in, I think, 2008. um, And it's a term that was coined by game designer Clint Hawking, who is known primarily for um, being like the Far Cry 2 guy, like the guy who who like spearheaded the good Far Cry. Okay. And now he's the lead on um, Watch Dogs 3. Um, but he's he's a really good developer and thinker about games. And so he came up with this idea that has now been kind of much maligned, but I still think it's a useful concept. So if, if people aren't familiar, um, little narrative dissonance really refers to a disconnect between a game's narrative themes and its ludic themes. So kind of a disconnect between what the game is about as a story and what it's about as a series of mechanics or systems. It, so that's what ludic means? Yeah, so ludic just refers to game. Okay, 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 okay. This is one of those things where, like, I know what this term as a mm-hmm. whole applies to, but I, yeah, okay. Yeah, so the dissonance between the narrative and the game. Sure. Or the narrative aspects what you're and the doing. gimmick yeah, aspects, yeah. yeah. And so for him, he was using Bioshock in his, as an example where the mechanics allow him, if he so chooses, to kind of take on some kind of Randian objectivist relationship mm-hmm. um, where you can act completely in your self-interest. But the narrative forces you to help certain characters. And so, you, so there is kind of a disconnect between how you might choose to play and then the themes that the the game engages with. 
but then also seems to dismiss at a narrative level. Sure, sure. Right, like the game has, and again, this is a critique of of Bioshock, is that it wants to present the illusion of choice, but it has kind of a clear moral outlook. Yeah, uh, it also... Yeah, I mean, we don't have to get into Bioshock, but yes, yes, I understand. Right, so that's kind of ludonarrative dissonance. And and some people do, I think, it's been critiqued for being kind of overused and oversimplified. So one way that you often hear ludonarrative dissonance used is, for example, as a critique of the Uncharted series, where people say, okay, mechanically, as Nathan Drake, you're clearly like a serial killer. <laughs> you, right. But in the cutscenes, you're just like this happy-go-lucky guy. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Right. And so there's that disconnect. And then, I mean, that's been critiqued with people saying, actually, that's an oversimplification of the term Mm. um, because it would it would work if, for example, Uncharted was really tied narratively to themes of nonviolence, which it's not. Sure, 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 sure. Um, The funny thing about the arguments against the Uncharted example is that Uncharted really doesn't aspire to art and doesn't really have any strong (laughs) themes. So it does. So this term doesn't even apply because it doesn't meet the meet like the threshold. It's not trying to do a thing <laughs> right? that it would Which be pushing kind of against. Funny. Right, right. <laughs> um, right. And so maybe it, maybe in those cases it is overused, but I still think it's useful as as a term to think about and get us to think critically about what is the game saying at a narrative level and what is it saying at a systems level, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and really getting us to think about that. And when there is kind of a marriage of those things, that's where I see kind of the art happen. Right. So for me, if if the themes of the game exist only in the cutscenes, um, or worse, right? If the themes are expressed in the narrative portions and then conflict with the mechanics right. in a way that's not doing that on purpose, right? then for me, that game is not artful. Sure. Right? So take something like Death Stranding that we talked about briefly um, in another episode. That is a game that for me, right, the art of that game happens exclusively between the cutscenes. I would argue despite the cutscenes, <laughs> yeah. Right, like the themes yeah. about mediated human connection in the 21st century are so much better articulated through the mechanics, yeah. through how it um, uses kind of a multiplayer system than any kind of dialogue or 100%. relationship between the characters in the cutscenes. So for me, that it is artistic in how it communicates those ideas just through its mechanics and its systems. And sure. ideally, if you're going to have a strong narrative component, those things should you, yeah. work together in, yeah. in, a, in yeah. a seamless way. Yeah. I think with the the issue of what is an artful game, I keep getting stuck on the idea of whether this needs to be about like meaning with like a capital mm-hmm. M. Because um, a lot of my answers want to go in that direction. But then I think about an example like uh, Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. Mm-hmm. So to me, this is an absolutely artful game. Mm. Uh, but it's also a game ass video game. Like it's, it just wants to be fun. It wants you to have a good time, give you some challenges. Uh, you can get through it. Um, it's not trying to say anything. It's not trying to like express some higher, whatever, whatever, but it's just like, it's such a smart and creative and beautiful evolution of those previous games and of the platformer genre. It has phenomenal art incredible music it feels incredible to play Mm -hmm. the controls in this game are are so so tight and so perfect and so clean and everything just feels the way you want it to it's just it's everything in that game is tuned and honed so perfectly it it just becomes this very like crafted experience it's like a pleasure to be in and it almost makes me start to think like is anything anything done well enough does it become art like so that's yeah, so I think my impulse, like my first impulse is to say, well, this is just kind of relitigating that, like the debate between art and craft. Sure, sure, sure. But but I, I kind of want to take this 
kind of what you mentioned about this meaning question, because really, I think this is a more interesting to think about if we kind of get rid of this belief that, quote unquote, art always has to say something grand about Right. The human experience, yeah, capital H, yeah. capital E. <laughs> the like undergrad essay of like from the dawn of time. <laughs> right. And and like only saying, saying that and if something is art, it must deal with these kind of grand mm-hmm. themes, mm-hmm. I think is kind of dumb. <laughs> um, right. Maybe for me, it's generally because I'm really typically kind of unmoved by these themes, especially in games, but really across art forms. I'm always... <laughs> I, I hardest don't know it. Like I'm always much more interested in like character studies. Sure, sure. Um, but anytime the, the grander and more kind of existential your themes get, the more alienated I usually am from the piece, and that's just that's just something about me. But typically, and this kind of goes back maybe to even something like Tropical Freeze, right? In games, I'm way more interested and impressed by games that try to systematize abstract concepts mm-hmm. yeah. than things that try to represent sort of some sort of truth about those concepts through their narrative. Okay. Like, for example, take like a Mario game. I'm way more impressed by Mario levels that kind of choose to exhaust a central idea. Mm-hmm. Like there'll be a level that explores verticality, for, in- for sure. instance, right? And that I think is way more artful and interesting than like whatever Mass Effect thinks it's saying about humanity's place in the universe or whatever. <laughs> Right. Or or something like if you've played that, that game, Realistic Kissing Simulator. I have. It's a riot. It's great. Okay, so we'll put that in the show notes. Okay, yeah, I'll link to it. that. Yeah. But like, I think that game says so it's much genius. more about the nature of romantic relationships than yeah. any romantic subplot I've ever seen in 100%. any game. 100%. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's especially strange because I think when it comes to movies, I'm usually way more into narrative. But when it comes to games, I think I like these kind of abstract art type games more. Hmm. Like. And like, I appreciate experimental film, but I don't really enjoy it. Right. But I definitely have more fun with kind of abstracty games that play with form than I do with games that really rely heavily, heavily on narrative with with some some exceptions. Yeah, I get this. I feel like this is um, cousin to my thing about visual art, which is like, I almost never like representational <laughs> visual art. As I've said before, I don't like paintings that are of things. Right. Yeah. Like I, I really have a strong preference towards abstract abstraction mm-hmm. in that context so i i understand having different preferences for this across different media like that mm-hmm. that also makes perfect sense to me yeah so in something like even shadow of the colossus right i think the game's much more interesting as kind of a deconstruction of traditional game structure mm-hmm. of the traditional action adventure structure than as a human or moral story you know? you know what that's exactly what i was trying to get at when i was trying to say i don't think my my weird uneven emotional experience of this is like breaks my relationship with it. Um, I think a lot of what you're talking about right now is the stuff that really grounded me and connected me and like will be memorable for me about that experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In these conversations, I always just come back to like, what are your stakes in using this term art? Um, Mm -hmm. Why do we want to label something as art and not something else? Like, what is that? What does that mean to us? What does it give to the thing? And this is kind of a, a dressed up way of asking why we should care about this mm-hmm. question. Like, part of me feels like, uh, is it are the stakes that once we say something has artistic value, we're allowed to care about it? Like, we we feel like then it's it's valid for us to spend so much time and so much effort, like w- with and be so connected to something. Is because calling something artful means we don't have to articulate the more specific reasons why we like something or understand our criteria or like is this just an intellectual exercise like what what is this <laughs> what are you what are we doing with this term yeah maybe this right maybe this isn't even a term we need because we don't need to put a top hat on everything we like just right to, right right 
But at the same time, you also don't want to dismiss things that you do like that you do think could have some kind of artistic value. Yeah. So I've played games that are art. Right. Yeah. And and something like Tropical Freeze, I think it's almost worth having that conversation because if that's the framework that people are placing around this discourse, mm-hmm. then to not have that ignored, you kind of have to use those terms to engage in that way, in that arena, right? Right, right. And so in in my kind of ideal world, nobody would ever use the word kind of capital A art anymore and we could just like what we like and everybody could take things as seriously as they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But that's not the world we live in. So, <laughs> so if I have to come and make a case for Tropical Freeze being art because it takes, for example, one core idea in one level and right. looks at it from every angle, right. I could, uh, then, I, then I would want to make a case for that as art. It's not... It's not your Citizen Kane, yeah. <laughs> but we need room for games to be the white canvas with the red square on it. Right, 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 right. Yes, absolutely. Right? And sometimes that is more meaningful. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but really, right, we'll probably play with these ideas as we move forward and talk about other games, um, even though I think the it's kind of absurd anyway. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's useful, sometimes it's not. But maybe the really the best thing to come out of people really looking at Shadow of Colossus and seeing it as something that is artistic is that it moved us towards thinking about games as whole experiences and not just a combination of discrete parts. Um, like, there's the graphics and the sound. We've talked about this right, before. Right, right, right. In the review structure. Like how people used to talk about games and how they just kind of, especially in the review structure, we just kind of break them up. Right, right. As if these things didn't form a kind of a cohesive whole. And really, it's it's in thinking about games that are kind of emerging at this time and thinking about games like Shadow of the Colossus that you really see this move away from that that is... I mean, it takes a long time and it's in some ways it's still ongoing, but to get towards a more refined um, understanding of what games criticism is and what games criticism can do and what games can do. And this was for me reading about this game was one of the first times that I see people writing about a game as being this meaningful, coherent, artistic whole. And that's that's something. Yeah, 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 Um, for sure. You don't need a fun factor score. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, before we kind of move on, I think maybe we can leave it there but uh we should check in with dave halverson oh my god <laughs> what see. is this guy up to i think we always want to know what he has to say about games yep and we uh we brought him up last time so what did what did dave think so um just briefly this did appear in uh, dave's top 10 of 2005 great um but it only ranked number five he initially thought it was going to be his game of the year but it ended up not being and he says that quote when i realized how straightforward of an adventure it was in terms of gameplay um, along with some uh, peculiar control issues associ- associated with the Colossi, I became more wrapped up on the plight spectacle and feeling I got riding, riding aggro. An emotional connection I've seldom, if ever, felt before. Uh, and then he gave his ultimate game of the year to um, Earthworm Jim. No, he gave it to God of War. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the original God of War. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's where, just in case everybody was wondering, that's where Dave... That's what Dave thought. What does Dave think? <laughs> okay, now before we get to um, maybe even a less meaningful review right. of Michelle's score, um, we should check on the one prediction. The only prediction I asked her was if she thought the horse was going to die, which now in retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have asked because it planted all these Borderline seeds. spoiler. Uh, I said he would not die. And then he did not die. I feel weird about the fact that he comes back. Uh, let's go on. <laughs> okay. So you, you want him to be dead? No, I don't want him to be dead, but it just feels like that part of the ending feels like the game being backing off from what it wants to do, which is let 
you deal with the fact that he dies and instead of being like, oh, no, we couldn't do that. Mm. Which oh, okay, is, I see what you mean. Which, yeah. like, the game doesn't want to do that anywhere else. And I respect that it doesn't do that elsewhere. It doesn't pull like its it, punches. Yeah, okay. And and this is like, oh, Agro comes limping back. Of course, I'm happy the horse lives. But, like, I don't know. It just it felt if it's a weird moment in the ending for me, even though I was happy to see him, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so uh, let's get your summative thoughts. I think you've had a kind of a conflicted relationship with this game. A bit. So uh, let's tease it out with your with your score. Okay. For delivering escalating combat without the skill trees, upgrades, or other gamey boosters, plus 20. For thinking I would have any interest in hunting lizards for fun, minus 8. For the exhilaration of driving aggro across an open plane, plus 20. For the eel design, plus 6. For making me get in the water with it, minus 15. For that one jump, you know the one, minus two. For a navigation system that both guides and conceals, plus 12. For the black tendrils you can't escape, plus eight. For the coherence and difference in the Colossus design, plus 20. For the ones that really, really didn't want to die, plus 10. For the micromanaging-ass camera, minus five. For its sad, serendipitous moments of grace, plus 18. For the stiff, cumbersome way it feels to move as Dorman, plus 10. For putting me back in Wander's body for one brief moment to hold on and struggle against the seal, plus 12. For leaving me to wonder if Agro and my girlfriend are trapped forever in a sealed land, plus 6 and minus 4. For that one triumphant major key battle theme, minus 5. But for the soaring, solemn, epic battle theme of my dreams, plus 20. For a total of 123 points. Whoa. Yeah. That's quite a huge score. It's good. I can't believe you only docked five points for the camera considering how much you complained and yelled about it. Yeah, it was very frustrating, but also I I think they wanted they wanted to give me a directed, carefully framed experience. I think it was I think it was in service of something the game was trying to do, which I have sympathy for. The O Tours touch. The- <laughs> if we must. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. Um, as always, you can find us at neverwasagamer.com. You can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. And go ahead and check the show notes if you want to see some of the games we talked about, including Realistic Kissing Simulator, which you 100% should try. It's free. Um, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please feel free to rate and review us on whatever platform you're using, including iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Yeah, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time as Michelle backflips into a game that takes the games-as-art debate a little too literally as she continues her quest to become a gamer.